If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 1. This is week 6 of our 11-week series called Two Friends and One Hero. We're looking at Elijah and Elisha who were prophets who uh, were sent by God to, with a, a word to a rebellious nation. And uh, as we look at them, we're also seeing how they point us to Christ. We've, uh, we just sang together Christ the true and better Adam, showing how uh, all the great figures of the Bible really were pointing to, foreshadowing, and, and looking to Jesus, and such is the case also with uh, the prophets. So uh, we've got a relatively short chapter today, chapter 1 of 2 Kings, and so that's where we'll be spending our time covering the, uh, the entire chapter. I have a friend who's a history professor, I've mentioned, to you, uh, mentioned him to you before, and he just loves history. I mean, just... I don't get it myself. I mean, I like history, but I don't understand what he gets so excited about. But it doesn't matter the era, whether it's American history or European history or Reformation history or whatever it is. He just loves history, travels around the world speaking at big conferences. And so I will sometimes, you know as friends do, I will sometimes lovingly provoke him by, by suggesting that I just don't see the value in it. I just don't see the benefit of it. I'll, I'll even... Maybe a quote, I may quote Henry Ford to him who said, history is bunk, you know, or, or a Sting, you know, who said, history will teach us nothing. And these get him a little worked up, but you know, it's all, it's all in good fun. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're new to the Christian faith or you're new to Capshaw and you're wondering, what do these exploits of these two prophets from 3,000 years ago in the Middle East, what do they have to do with us? What can we learn about, again, two prophets thousands of years ago? Well, the answer is a lot, actually. There's a lot that we can learn uh, from these prophets about God's plan of salvation, about God's character, about who God is and uh, what he has promised to do. And so we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 1. This, next week, we'll, we haven't really met Elisha yet. Next week, we'll meet Elijah, Elisha, rather. Uh, but this morning, continuing to look at Elijah. And as we read the text this morning, going to ask and answer three questions. Um, one is, what is God's greatest concern? What does he care about more than anything else in the world? A second question then was, would be, what does that mean for us? So what does God's greatest concern mean for us? And third, what happens when we show little or no concern for what concerns God the most? So what happens when we show little or no concern for what concerns God the most? So let's start by looking at what is God's greatest concern um, Look with me uh, at the text, and, and we're going to cover chapter 1, but I want to start by reading verses 51 through 53 of, chapter, of the last chapter of 1 Kings. So 1 Kings uh, 1, 51, and we'll cover through, uh, and I'll stop at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. And then jumping over to 2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover 
from this sickness. So I just want to pause there and make sure we frame this in the overall sort of meta-narrative, the big story. The Old Testament is the history of God's dealings with His people, uh, namely Israel, and their constant rebellion against this same God who had delivered them and rescued them and saved them countless times. Now, this rebellion didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, It was all part of the context of, of really, the context of bad leaders. Uh, Israel was led to rebellion and idol worship by one evil and wicked king after another. But here's the shocking part. Even in the middle of Israel's idolatry, God did not forsake this nation In fact, he would send prophets to warn the people to show them the error of their ways and to call them to repentance. So the prophets would call with the word of repentance. It was also, they were meant to show that God still loved this rebellious nation and would send for them a redeemer. Well, we get to 2 Kings 1 that I just read, the early part of it. The wicked king Ahab is dead. If you've been around the last few weeks, you've You've seen kind of uh, Ahab's uh, debauchery and poor leadership. And now a new king has, uh, is in, in his place. Ahab's dead. His wife Jezebel is dead. And Ahaziah is king in Israel. But he too is evil and bent on worshiping idols. And in the passage that I just read, Ahaziah, he's up on the, on the deck of the palace, you might say, on the rooftop. He falls through the lattice, um, suffers a terrible fall, is injured badly, probably infected, Um, And he sends his servants to inquire from Beelzebub if he will uh, recover from this sickness. So he wants to know, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be okay? And am I going to get better? When will improvement uh, begin? Now, here's it's kind of interesting. The name of the manifestation of the false god of Baal in the Philistine city of Ekron. So there were Baals all over, and they they had individual names in, in different cities. The name of the the manifestation of the false god Baal in the Philistine city of Ekron was actually Baalzebul, okay? Baalzebul with an L at the end, uh, which means Lord Prince. So this was was an exalted name, Baalzebul, the Lord Prince. But interestingly, when the biblical writers actually record the name, they record the name as Baalzebub. So you see the difference, Baalzebul and Baalzebub. Baalzebub means Lord of the Flies. And so what's happening here is the biblical writers are actually, in their recounting of events, they're mocking the, God, the false gods uh, that were worshipped uh, so readily. They're mocking Baalzebul, calling him Baalzebub, basically saying he's not the Lord Prince, he's the Lord of the Flies. He is a God who doesn't even exist. He is a God who has no power. He is a God. He's simply a lifeless statue. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. And these are are somewhat undeveloped thoughts because I keep coming back to this as I'm in in reading through the Kings. As I've been studying them, I've, I've been asking the question, noticing why is there so much sarcasm and ridicule um, among the prophets. And so you may recall just with Elijah. So here you have the writers of the, the scriptures actually mocking or ridiculing um, this false god. Remember a few weeks ago in the passage that Pastor Brandon covered, this great showdown where Elijah is mocking the, the prophets of Baal. And they say, well, where is your God? Where did he go? 
Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's, he's doing number two. What, what's the deal with this God? So he's mocking uh, this false God. And this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. We see it in the New Testament as well with the Apostle Paul. The church at Corinth, as you may know, was kind of puffed up with knowledge, and they really, they really esteemed themselves as the most open-minded and you know, the most uh, sort of erudite and sophisticated of all people. And then Paul actually mocks them and says, he says, oh, you're kings. You're so magnified. You're kings and without us. And so you have sarcasm and mockery and ridicule. And I guess the thing that I'm, and I'm not making any conclusions here, but this did pop in my mind several times. I wonder what we're supposed to do with this. And I do wonder what role, again, please don't run too far with this, but I do wonder what role sarcasm and ridicule maybe even have in, in our own sort of defense of the faith and witness. And what I mean by that is some of the ideas and the notions that the leading cultural voices are trying to persuade us of, especially as it relates to things like gender and sexuality, are so outrageous, so ridiculous, so inane that I have wondered if sarcasm, ridicule, might be one way uh, for us to get uh, their attention. Again, I'm not sure, and that's just the thought that I had as I read this that I wanted to pass along. But here the biblical writers are mocking the false god Baalzebul, but that doesn't stop Ahaziah from sending messengers, servants to Ekron, which is some 25 or 28 miles, to Seek these false these gods to get answers about his prognosis. Now look at verses 3 and 4. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So Ahaziah, he's sick, he's fallen down, he's probably got some gruesome injuries, some, some uh, infection, whatever. He sends messengers to the false god Baalzebul, and he wants to know, am I going to get better? But, but the Lord, the living God, the God of the Bible, tells Elijah, I want you to go and intercept, meet those messengers, and I want you to, to ask them a question. I want you to ask them a question. Now remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about how questions are often better than answers when it comes to diagnosing matters of the heart. And it's, it's true in parenting, it's true in evangelism, it's true in, in leadership, and so on, marriage. Well, here, God calls Elijah to ask the king's messengers a question. Here's, here it is. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, here's why this question is asked. There's no good way to answer this. It's impossible to answer this question in a favorable way. Why can't they say yes? Well, if they say that it's because there's no God in Israel that they're going to inquire Baalzebub, what are they saying? They're saying, they're denying, that not only are they denying the existence of Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they're also saying even though there are all these shrines and all these statues of Baal all over the place, um, He's still not here. He's nowhere to be found. And this is why we have to go elsewhere. So they can't say yes 
is because there's no God in Israel. Well, they also can't say no. What happens if they say no? If they say no, you know, it's, it's not because there's no God in Israel we're inquiring from another God. What they're saying is that the God they worship, even though he may be around, he may be present, he's powerless to do anything. They have to go to another God, another manifestation in order to get anything done. So you see, there, there's no right answer here. One Old Testament commentator says, the purpose of the question is not simply to make a claim for the Lord, but to get these individuals themselves explicitly or implicitly to downgrade the goodness of Baal. So God sends Elijah with a question that can't possibly be answered in a favorable way, which is meant to get to the basically the fact that Baal doesn't exist. Now, so they're stuck. Look at verses 5 through 8. The messengers then returned to the king and said to them, uh, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And then this is the king. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Now there's some things, you know, there is, there's humor uh, in the Bible. And there's some things you, you can't really pick up on in the English language. The, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And there's an interesting turn of phrase here. So the king says to the messengers when they come back, he said, what did the guy look like uh, who, who said this to you? And, and the Hebrew literally reads, Baal Shur, which is, Baal, you know, is the word Lord. It, it literally means Lord of hair. And so it can, now there's a couple of things this can be translated. If you have a New Living translated, uh, I'll, you know, I'll tell you what that says in a minute. Um, but it, it, it can mean this is a guy who, wore a hair shirt, which is what some of the prophets did. Or it can mean, this is just a really, really hairy dude. And this, if you read the New Living Translation, I think it says, uh, you know, it just said, what did, what did it look like? He was hairy. And this is, I mean, if you're Elijah, this is not really encouraging, is it? I mean, have you ever played that word game? You know, you, somebody says one word, and you respond, and they say, you say cloud, and you think, okay, sky, or cereal, bowl, or car, you think, Key. Well, when, this, when, they, when the king asked the messengers, he just says, what does Elijah look like? They immediately think he was hairy, just a hairy dude. So he goes back. The king immediately knows who's the hairiest guy I know. It's Elijah. So he knows exactly who it is. He said, it's Elijah. He's, in, he's infuriated. Now look at what happens in verses 9 and following. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men. This is, they're sending this group to Elijah. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men, of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. 
Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So this is a devastating uh, situation. 102 fatalities. 102 people are killed. Two captains, two groups of 50 soldiers, all because they went to inquire of a foreign god, ignoring the one true God of Israel. Now, why such a violent response by God? Why is God so outraged by this? Why do these people have to die over this? Well, it goes to our first question that I said we'd answer this morning. What is God's greatest concern? Here here it is. This is our first point this morning. God's greatest concern and most unyielding passion is for his own glory. There is nothing in all the world that God cares about more than his own glory. There's nothing that God is concerned about more than his own glory. There's nothing that God goes to greater lengths to safeguard than his own glory. God's glory is God's greatest concern. Now, someone might say, well, I mean, surely there are other things. What about creation? Isn't that God's greatest concern? Someone else might say, what about salvation, forgiveness? Isn't that God's greatest concern? Or someone else may say, what about mission, making disciples? Surely that's God's greatest concern. Well, let's look at those three very quickly. First of all, creation. Was it God's goal to create something out of nothing, right? To create a world out of nothing? Of course it was. We know that's the case. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Was it important for God to make the world? Absolutely. But creation is only a means to an end. It's not the end. Creation is the means to an end. Creation is a me is the means for showcasing the glory of God. Psalm 19:1 says, "The heavens are telling the glory of God." The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says, "For his invisible attributes, his power, glory and eternal nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made." So everywhere we look, Creation is actually telling the glory of God. His power and beauty and kaveh, that Hebrew word just means weight, are made evident so that men are without excuse. This is by God's design. The universe is the theater for God's glory. Creation is the means to showcase God's splendor. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Nature gave the word glory meaning for me. I still do not know where else I could have found one. I do not see how the fear of God could ever meant to me anything but the lowest prudential efforts to be safe if I had never 
seen certain ominous ravines and unapproachable crags. In other words, as we see the wonders of the world, we get a glimpse into the glory of God. And that is all by God's design. Several years ago, I was stranded in a remote village in Kenya. I had finished all my preaching obligations, and and my hosts, they had other responsibilities. So they said, we're going to drop you off um, at a Mennonite safe house in the middle of the, the Kenyan uh, jungle uh, for 18 hours. And, you know, it, it's not that long, but it, it, I had no, no internet, no cell service, no TV, no electronics. And uh, I was really struck by how much I'm accustomed to my phone and electronics. So I had 18 hours and, I, you know, I read a little bit and then I would sort of pace around and read a little bit more and pace a little bit more. And then it got dark. And I remember what, my, what these folks had said to me when they dropped me off. They said, there's a 50-foot wall that goes around this property, which will keep out the leopards and the hyenas, um, but no promises about the baboons. And so I thought, well, uh, I'm going to be very careful here before I, I, I venture out. Uh, well, it got dark. It was about 1030. And, and I could look out this window and I could see just this incredible African sky and just the most beautiful thing and I thought um, I would take a walk by which I managed took two steps out on the front door of the front door and I looked around and just blown away by just the majesty and the beauty of this sort of never-ending expanse right and, and and I remember thinking in a way that was kind of fresh to me just how magnificent God is how awesome God truly is. Creation is a means to an end, and that is to bring God's glory. God glory. Well, someone say, well, what about forgiveness? Surely that's uttermost uh, important to God. Well, actually, God delights in forgiving those who repent. He takes great joy in that. But he forgives in order to showcase his own glory. Listen to what God says to the prophet Isaiah. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, that's to say, for the sake of my glory, and I, will, and I will not remember your sins. A few chapters later, God says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. For you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Everything God does, he does for his glory. Jonathan Edwards, who's maybe written on this topic more persuasively or convincingly than anybody else who's ever written on it, says this, All that is ever spoken of in the Scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The beams of glory come from God and are refunded back again to their original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God and God is the beginning, middle, and end in this affair. Even forgiveness God does for his own glory. Now what about mission? What about making disciples of all nations? The the last words of Jesus in terms of the mission he sends his disciples on. Well, Even salvation has a greater purpose than just rescuing people from eternal condemnation. And praise God, that's a a major part of it. But what's so amazing about God's salvation is he does it to bring glory to his own name. Paul says in Ephesians 1, a book uh, that 
It's just a beautiful picture of the church and God's salvation. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we uh, who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of His glory. Even salvation is for the glory of God. So God's greatest concern is His own glory. But what does that mean for us? Our second question Here's our second point. Since God's God's greatest concern is His glory, He made us to reflect that glory. Because we were created for Him, uh, for His glory, forgiven by Him, loved by Him, redeemed by Him, adopted as His children, our lives must be about bringing Him glory. That is to say, the primary purpose behind everything we do Everything we do is to showcase, to point to, to accentuate, to put on display the perfect attributes of God. Now, certainly, we put them on display imperfectly, but what we're meant to do is actually showcase and point to the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, the love of God, and His forgiveness. Now, think about how radical and life-changing this is, actually. To think that the the end goal of everything you do, the end goal of everything you do, of everything you set your mind to, your career, your parenting, your relationships, your pleasure, your marriage is to glorify God. Certainly changes the way that we see things, changes the way that we go about parenting not just so that my kids would be successful and, and, and have a good name and marry a nice person and you know, whatever. Our marriage is not just so I can be happy. and It's actually about the glory of God. As I said to a young couple that I united in marriage last weekend in San Clemente, which is just a little north of, of uh, San Diego, I said to them, you're going to enjoy moments of intimacy and oneness and laughter and friendship, and all these amazing things for which God designed marriage. But I want you to remember, marriage is not ultimately about you. It's not about your happiness, ultimately, right? It's not about your self-actualization. It's not ultimately about your pleasure. It is ultimately about the glory of God. So how will you glorify God in your marriage? Everything we do, we've been created to do for the glory of God. It's not about us. My preferences, my desires, my whims, my fancies, whatever. It's about God's glory. Now, I have to remind myself of this all the time. It's not about you. It's not about what you want, John. It's not about what you think should happen or what you think is right. It's about God and His glory. God must be glorified in everything we do as individuals and as a church. The why we do what we do has always got to be to spread the glory and the fame and the honor of our God. Now, sometimes the question is asked, well, isn't it selfish or wrong for God to desire all the glory? And the answer goes back to the Rhetorical question that God made, that God uh, issued, sent to the, the messengers of the king in 2 Kings 1, which basically is saying, 
Is there a God vacuum in Israel? Is there another God who can answer you? Is there another God who can heal you? Of course there isn't. Because there's only one God. Absolutely sovereign. Completely self-sufficient in himself. All sufficient for his creatures. He must only glory in himself. Not because he has some deficiency. He doesn't. But in order to display his complete sufficiency for his creatures. In other words, as one theologian has said, God must delight in what's infinitely delightful. God must take pleasure in what's infinitely pleasant. He must be infinitely satisfied with what is infinitely satisfying. So God's joy in God is one of the things that makes him God. If God actually were to, glory, to glorify in something else, if God were to seek to, to glorify someone else, that person then would become elevated above God, and God would be fraudulent, of course, which is impossible. So, so God's concern is his own glory, and because he's jealous for his own glory, he is deeply angered by idolatry. This is why here in 2 Kings 1, God engulfs in flames those who persist in worshiping other gods. This is both a picture of God's white-hot passion for his own glory, but also a demonstration of how God deals with unrepentant idolatry. It's a terrifying picture of God's response to the worship of other gods. God cannot tolerate false worship. His infinitely bright glory will not allow it. What is the very first of the Ten Commandments say, delivered to Moses on the same spot that Elijah would stand there on Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of the ten words. This is the first of the law of God. Now, to have no other gods before him uh, doesn't mean that God's okay with some other gods being in the picture as long as they're behind him. This is an idiomatic way to say that God has no interest in being one important person among many. No interest in being uh, one object of our supreme affection among many others. It means that He alone is the one who stirs our hearts. He, is the one, he alone is the one who invokes our praise, who elicits our reverence and astonishment, whose authority we honor. To have no other gods before God... Uh, means that this, this, this is extending his fame and showcasing his glory, that becomes our greatest passion in life, for God to be glorified. But even at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, we see that we have a major problem, don't we? We don't always love God more than anything or anyone else. We don't always seek his glory above all else. The truth is we're tempted to love many other things at many other times other than or more than God. Despite God's faithfulness to us, we forget about the way He loved us, the way He rescued us, the forgiveness that is ours, the way He has guided us and protected us and healed us. And our hearts are drawn away by other things, our careers, money, a significant other, the praise of men, pleasure, comfort, whatever it is. Whatever we love, fear, or delight in more than God becomes the object that we worship and the object that we make a God out of. 
And because of our idolatry, we deserve the fiery wrath of God ourselves. Because of our own idolatry, we deserve the fiery wrath of God. Here's our final point this morning. The fiery wrath of a holy God must be satisfied in either one of two ways. Now, what does that mean in either one of two ways? Well, one way that God's wrath is satisfied is through the everlasting punishment of those who reject Him in hell. Those who reject God will will endure eternal punishment because God's glory is eternal. His holiness is eternal. Now, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? It's a terrifying thought that eternal punishment is reserved for those who reject this holy God. I mentioned this wedding we were at last weekend. Well, we had the led the ceremony, and then after the ceremony, there was a one-hour uh, period where we were kind of all ushered into this patio area. It was, you know, Southern California. It was outside. It was a little cold, but it was pretty, pretty nice out. And so we're hanging out in this area with drinks and hors d'oeuvres, and, and we were told that in one hour, the bridal party will, will make their grand entrance into, uh, you know, into this uh, big room, and, you know, which is always a fun thing to see how they come in. And, you know, some had very elaborate dances prepared. Some were mortified at the thought of all the attention being on them. But we're waiting there for one hour. Janine and I were kind of walking around and, uh, you know, just meeting new people. We met this one guy who was a pastor and uh, was fairly new in his appointment. And so we were talking about, he said, yeah, I, he said, I actually was kind of brought into this position very hurriedly because my predecessor, the guy that I followed, he announced to the elders one day that he no longer believed in hell. And so in an elder meeting, this pastor of this church said, you know, guys, I just can't accept it. I just cannot accept the idea of eternal punishment for those who reject God and his son. And now, I totally disagree with his conclusion, but I can on one level understand just how difficult of a thought this is. Think about eternal condemnation, eternal wrath being poured out on those who reject God. So one way that God's fiery wrath is satisfied is by eternal punishment. But the whole story of the Bible is that God has provided a way for His wrath to be satisfied. And that was by sending His Son, the God-man, to live and to die in our place. The one who died a death on a cross, receiving the curse of God that rested on us, absorbing the wrath of God that we, in fact, deserved. Every prophet of the Old Testament points to this coming Redeemer, the one that God would send. And certainly Elijah and Elijah do. They provide hints and shadows of the coming Redeemer. Perhaps none, though, is clear as the prophet Isaiah. Centuries before Jesus was born, Isaiah would write this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Elijah and Elisha and every other prophet in the Bible, they're all pointing to the greater prophet, priest, and king who would come and actually satisfy God's wrath for a sinful and rebellious people. God punished Jesus for us. 
And Jesus wasn't forced to bear God's wrath. He willingly laid down his own life. He willingly endured it so that by trusting in him, he would be exalted and we would be forgiven. Spared of God's wrath, set free from the fear of condemnation, and ultimately, finally, and fully healed. Those who trust in Jesus, his sinless life, his death in our place, his resurrection are once for all forgiven for every one of their sins. We no longer have to worry about God's wrath. It was fully poured out on Christ in our stead. In fact, the passage I read a few minutes ago from Isaiah, God says, I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Is there a greater comfort in all the scriptures than that? If you're in Christ, God has forgotten about your sins. They have been laid on Jesus Christ and he has paid the penalty for them all. To be forgiven by God means that God promises never to bring up our sin again, never to remind us of it, never to hold it against us, never to throw it in our face, never to threaten us with our own sin. Because the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, our iniquity, Isaiah 53, our sins are no longer on God's radar. That means the sin that you committed last night, it means the sins I committed this morning, it means the sins in our past that we want no one else to know about, that we can't seem to let go of. If you are in Christ, they have been fully and completely forgiven, and God will never again bring them up against you. This goes for the sin of idolatry, the one we've seen today. For all the ways that we love other things more than God, pursue other things for healing and satisfaction and joy other than God, like Ahaziah did, for all of those sins... When we repent and believe in Jesus, they're covered once for all. Those are the sins that he lived for. Those are the sins that he died for. He has provided a way of salvation. And this is why all creatures, all who are in Christ, can lift their voice and sing, Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its power. Thank you for the forgiveness of ours that is in Christ. Thank you that your just wrath, your fiery wrath, the wrath of a holy God was fully satisfied on the cross as you poured it out on your beloved son who died in our place, who obeyed all the commands so that his perfect record could be ours by faith. And Father, in light of the salvation that is ours, in light of the, the, the salvation history, the story of your redeeming work, your redeeming love throughout the Bible, in light of that, we praise you, we thank you, and we worship you, as does all of creation, which sings and points to your glory. Help us to believe it and to rest in it today, in Christ's name, amen.